Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, everyone. This is Alyssa, the editor for Unknown History. I just wanted to give you a heads up that this week we are re-airing the interview with author Daisy Goodwin to celebrate the new series Victoria on PBS, premiering Sunday, January 15th. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special clip from the Victoria audiobook, read by Anna Wilson-Jones, who plays Lady Emma Portman in the series. But first, here's the interview with Daisy Goodwin. Welcome to Unknown History, a podcast full of quirky tales from the past. I'm Giles Milton, author of When Churchill Slaughtered Sheep and Stalin Robbed a Bank. And today we're excited to be here with Daisy Goodwin, author of Victoria, which is available now at all book retailers. Daisy is the author of the New York Times bestselling novels The American Heiress and The Fortune Hunter. She's a Harkness scholar who attended Columbia University's film school after earning a degree in history at Cambridge University. And she was chair of the judging panel of the 2010 Orange Prize for Fiction. The creator and screenwriter of the masterpiece presentation Victoria on PBS, she lives in London. Queen Victoria wrote more than 62 million words in her diaries, which you've extensively read and sifted through for your research. What were a few of the most interesting stories you came across in the diaries? Hmm. Well, I came across Queen Victoria when I was a teenager myself. Um, it's so long ago, I, I can barely... <laughs> it's back in the last century. And um, I was reading history at Cambridge, and one of the subjects I was studying was Queen Victoria and the media. And as part of the uh, essay assignment was to go and read some of her diaries. So I went into the library and I got one of these enormous red leather band volumes of her of her diaries of which they're you know she wrote a lot you know the woman with if, if she'd been alive today she would have been the queen of social media as well as everything else and uh, and I opened it up and it sort of fell open at a page in 1839 and I was just sort of my eyes sort of flicked down the page and you know I was thinking Queen Victoria seriously I mean she's quite a sort of she was this kind of stodgy old woman in a in in black in a bonnet to me but then i saw this phrase which just made me go whoo because it said uh, i saw my dearest albert today and it was raining outside and he was wearing his uniform he looked so splendid and and he had these white cashmere breeches with with nothing on underneath and i just went whoa my goodness that's that's not um an old lady in a bonnet that's that's a living breathing passionate teenager and I guess it kind of it was one of those sort of moments where you think you suddenly uh, go beyond the historical figure to to see the person behind the words and I just thought well here, here is a girl you know and she's only 19 she's just fallen madly in love she's really interested in men and sex and and she's got a very passionate nature and I suddenly sort of saw my way into her uh, in a way that made it very easy for me much later you know 30 years later to to to, to write a a screenplay and an, and a novel about her because I just had this insight into this into this girl really um and I suppose what her diaries reveal if you read them is that she was a woman 
of strong emotion and she you know she she notices everything she's interested in everything she's you know her diaries are incredibly vivid they're a fantastically good resource i mean i can't think of any other monarch about whom we know so much and what's interesting about them i think is that they were censored after her death by her youngest daughter beatrice and then they were edited for publication by two courtiers two elderly gay men who sort of you know for the publication took out all the bits about the things that she was very interested in you know men's sex the horrors of childbirth how much she hated breastfeeding all that kind of stuff they took about they took out all the kind of yucky stuff and um, what's so great is if you go back to the originals or as as close to the originals as we can get you actually get a sense of here's the woman not just the head of state but here's the woman and so if you want to know what it's like to be you know the woman who's the head of the most powerful country in the world for 63 years, um, then you can go back to her diaries and get a very, very strong sense of what it was like. And, you know, obviously my my work has extrapolated from that. Um, but I suppose what I feel about the diaries is they are both a record of what she did, but there is also, you know, there is room in there to kind of, interpret what she doesn't say. I mean, you can read between the lines. So, for example, I've done a lot to show her relationship with Lord Melbourne, which I've written about extensively. Um, she doesn't in the diary say, you know... Well, she does actually say, I love Lord Melbourne. She does. She says it pretty much on every single page. She doesn't actually say, I love him and I want to marry him. But if you if you read her diaries and if you remember what your own diaries were like as a teenager, it is clear that he is the absolute sinusure of her thoughts. I mean, he is literally all she can think about. Every single page is, Lord M said this, Lord M said that, Lord M likes blue, Lord M doesn't like earrings, Lord M and I go for a ride, Lord M isn't coming for dinner, where is he? You know, I mean, it, it, it's the most extraordinary document of a girl who's clearly madly in love. So I've used the diaries both as a, as a factual document and also as a very um, clear indication of her of her state of mind. There's a big controversy surrounding whether or not Queen Victoria had a relationship with her Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. Can you speak to some of the evidence that supports this association? Well, I don't think I don't think there's any debate that she had a relationship with Lord Melbourne. I mean, you've got to imagine, so Victoria comes to the throne, she's 18, she, until she meets Lord Melbourne, she's only ever, ever been alone in a room with a man once, and that was an old Prime Minister called Lord Liverpool. So, and then Lord Melbourne turns up, and he is a famous ladies' man. He's had this very colourful past. You know, he's had lots of women. His wife famously ran away with Lord Byron. He's a figure of legend. He's, he's a romantic figure. And um, she had no father. Her father had died when she was six months. The only the man in her life, the chief man in her life, was, was her mother's advisor, Sir John Conroy, who she detested and who she thought was trying to who she rightly thought was trying to wrest power from her. So there is no man in her life, really. And then suddenly Melbourne turns up, and Melbourne is charming, he's attractive. Yes, he's much older than her, but, you know, he's the first person, I think, who really takes her seriously. And she is, you know, she falls for him. I mean, she, you know, you can see from the moment she meets him in her diaries, that's literally all she writes about for three years is Lord Durham. And in fact, you know, 
I, I could have done a whole series just about her and Lord Dern because when you say relationship, I mean, I think it's unlikely that it was um, an affair in, 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 the pure, in the carnal sense because although she was very passionate, I know that I think that Melbourne would never have, have, have crossed the line. Um, I think there's no doubt that he was also very attached to her. I and mean, I think the way I see it is that Melbourne was Victoria's first love and Victoria was Melbourne's last love, sadly. Um, you know, there was lots of evidence at the time that, you know, people who saw them together were convinced that there was a relationship between the two. I mean, there's a contemporary diarist called Greville who was the clerk of the Privy Council and he just said, well, you know, the Queen is completely... Um, besotted with Lord Melbourne and her feelings are, are, are sexual if she but knew it. So everybody could see what was going on. And when there was a, a scandal over the um, the bedchamber crisis, which was basically a a moment when Melbourne, who was Prime Minister, had lost a vote in the House of Commons and he'd resigned his post and, they, and a new Prime Minister was coming in. And at that time... You know, the monarch was meant to have a change of administration in her household and Victoria refused to give up her ladies, which caused a huge drama and meant that, in fact, the, um, the, the incoming Tory Prime Minister wasn't able to form an administration and, and, and Victoria got what she wanted, which was to get Melbourne back. And this caused a huge furore and, uh, you know, they went to, uh, I think it was the Derby together, a famous um, horse race, and um, they were booed by the crowd and people shouted Mrs Melbourne. So there was definitely a perception that their relationship was a great deal more than that of uh, one between Prime Minister and, um, and and Monarch. I mean, it was, you know, it was clearly a love affair, uh, however you want to define a love affair. Um, obviously, I probably have heightened it a bit in in my work, but I don't think I've done it in a way that is untrue to the realities of the situation I think the point about drama is that you are looking for the emotional truth and I think I'm convinced that's the emotional truth and anybody I think who was to read her diaries would know that that's how she felt and I think if you look at Melbourne you can see that here's a man who's you know who's who's done everything seen everything been everywhere and yet and suddenly this passionate willful kind of extraordinary creature comes into his life and he is captivated. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Your new historical fiction novel is focused on young Queen Victoria. What led you to focus on the early life in this book? Well, I've written about Victoria a couple of times and I've written in my last book, The Fortune Hunter, I'd written about Victoria um, 
in her when she was in her 60s. I find it very easy to get into Victoria's voice. It was interesting. And I'd started thinking about another novel. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, really, actually, you know, the really interesting moment is Victoria at the beginning of her reign. And I was thinking that, you know, to be 18, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary moment. And the thing that triggered it really for me was that my, I have a daughter who's actually 16, and but she's sort of the same height as Victoria. She's, you know, five foot and Victoria was four foot 11. And she's very small and she's very intense and she's very passionate and she's full of hormones and, you know, she's turbulent. And we were having a huge row and she rushed out of the room and slammed the door and I thought, hmm, well, how would it be if, you know, she was to wake up and tomorrow morning and find herself, you know, the most powerful woman in the world, which is what happened to Victoria. One day she's, you know, an obscure royal living in, you know, on the edge of London in Kensington Palace, being bullied by her mother and her horrible, her mother's horrible advisor and not allowed to sleep in her own room and not allowed to walk down the stairs on her own. And then the next morning, she's queen. And what she says goes. And, and that's, that's astonishing. And I was just thinking, you know, what, <laughs> what would my daughter do? And that sort of gave me the dramatic impetus. I could see that that was a great moment to start a, a drama, to start a novel. So, so that's where I went into it. And of course, you know, the early years of her reign are fascinating. Um, you know, you've got a country that's been ruled for centuries by old, fat, um, disreputable men. Suddenly you've got this beautiful young queen. She's, um, you know, she's innocent. She's 18. She's tiny. And, and everybody, I think the whole country goes, oh, you know, and... And and then there are other people going, oh, my goodness, you know, how can a little girl govern the country? So there's both enormous kind of warmth towards her and then there's a whole kind of establishment sort of hardening their ranks and thinking, you know, this is never going to work because she's not a bloke. So, you know, it's, an, it's a very exciting moment. So that's where I felt uh, this was the place to start. And And it's really about her learning to be queen and having to do all her growing up in public at a time when, you know, she's not... You know, today's royal family, are their, their image is very carefully managed by spin doctors and PR people and so forth. But Victoria didn't have any of that. You know, literally, you could, you could drive past Kensington Palace and see her in the gardens. I mean, it was... You know, the monarchy was much closer to the public in those days. And, you know, the press was savage. So, you know, the cartoons were awful. So I think it was really tough to be a young woman, um, you know, taking your first steps and to have that level of scrutiny, which is just as bad as it is now. But without, she didn't have any of the kind of the layer of, um, uh, you know, managers that, that, that the royals have now. Victoria's public legacy is often one of the doting grandmother or stodgy old widow. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about her? Well, I think the thing about Victoria is that we have an image of the Victorians as somehow being repressed and prudish and, you know, ashamed of bodies and sex. But that wasn't Victoria at all. I mean, Victoria was clearly incredibly um, highly sexed. She... You know, she and Albert had nine children in 17 years. 
And, you know, she writes very frankly in her diaries about how much she loves, you know, what goes on in bed between her and Albert. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's no, there's no euphemism there. It's, you know, it's clear. She, you know, last night was the most wonderful night of my life. You know, when Albert goes away, she says, oh, I had, I had no fun without Albert. And, you know, it's clear that's what she really enjoys. And, in fact, there's a very, very funny story about when, after her ninth child, her doctor says to her, you know, ma'am, I think maybe you shouldn't really have any more children because... Um, you know, she, nine children's a lot, especially when you're only four foot eleven. And she goes, "Oh, doctor, does that mean no more fun in bed?" And that's, you know, that, that, that that's how she thought about it. And there's another great story about how Prince Albert builds Osborne House, which was the royal residence on the Isle of Wight. He designs every detail, and one of the details he designs is a special device so that when Victoria and he go to bed and they don't want to be disturbed. He can lock the door from the bed so that, you know, servants and children can't come rushing in if they want to get it on, which I thought showed incredible um, attention to detail. <laughs> so I think that that's one of the sort of refreshing things about Victoria. And if you read her diaries, you know, she's always talking about, you know, periods and breastfeeding and how much she hates, you know, the horrors of being a woman. And I mean, it's very, very frank. And I think another thing that is rather wonderful about Victoria um, is that she she wasn't a snob and she was, for her times, remarkably colourblind. So, you know, she's very, you know, she's the first monarch to, um, you know, one of the first things she does is to make a chap called Moses Montefiore, who's a, a Jewish... Um, uh, financier, she she gives him a knighthood, so he's the first Jew to get a, a title um, in Britain, and that was a very significant thing, because up until that point Jews had not been given sort of that kind of official recognition, and she gives him a title, and she writes her diary, I was very, very pleased to be able to do this, and uh, you know, she has a Nigerian goddaughter, she takes in um, Dilip Singh, Who's the who's a sort of exiled Maharaja, and so she was very, you know, she didn't have colour prejudice in the way that many, you know, that that, that developed later in Britain, and um, you know, later in life she had this Indian servant who she was devoted to. I think was the last love of her life. So, I think I think the idea of Victorians as prudish and bigoted is certainly not true in Victoria's case. Your book, Victoria, is also the basis for a hugely popular miniseries on PBS called Victoria, which you also wrote. Can you share a few parts of the show that are either factual or fiction and why you made those decisions? I suppose my, my approach to the book and the, and, the, and the screenplay is wherever possible to make the action based on fact. Um, one of the first things that happens to Victoria is this, is this great scandal involving a woman called Lady Flora Hastings. And basically the story of that is that Lady Flora Hastings was her mother's lady-in-waiting. And Victoria didn't get on with her mother at all. And she came to believe that this Lady Flora Hastings, who was a sort of 30-year-old spinster, um, was pregnant. And that the person who made her pregnant was her mother's advisor, Sir John Conroy, who Victoria loathed beyond anyone in the whole world. And so 
uh, Flora had this sort of swelling and the gossip was that Flora was was pregnant and Victoria chose to believe this and she sent doctors, she sent her doctor to examine Lady Flora, which was a really extraordinary thing to do. I mean, quite a, you know, for, for, for a young girl to send a doctor to examine a woman who, you know, to see whether she was pregnant or not, you know. And the sad thing was, the tragic thing was that Lady Flora wasn't pregnant at all. She, in fact, the reason that she looked as though she was pregnant was because she had... Um, Never cancer, so she had a huge tumour. It wasn't a, it wasn't a baby; it was a tumour. And then Lady Flora died, and that was a terrible sort of scandal that happened very early in Victoria's reign, and and and, and made her very unpopular because people were horrified by Victoria's behaviour. And so that's a story that you you might think I'd made up, but actually is completely true. And then later in the uh, in the series, there's a moment when Victoria is dancing with Albert the first time they danced together and she's wearing some flowers in her hair and um, Albert says oh those flowers remind me of my mother and the point about Albert is that his mother left him when he was only five he never saw her after the age of five and Victoria says well you must have the flowers and Albert says but I've got nowhere to put them and then he he takes out a knife and he cuts a hole in his jacket and he puts the flowers in the hole next to his heart. Now, again, people accuse me of making that up, but again, it's completely true. I read it in a contemporary account of their, of their courtship. So, you know, there are some things I have made up, like uh, the, the moment where Victoria goes to see Lord Melbourne at Brockett Hall and, and um, she she basically tries to propose to him and he won't let her and um, that's something that I that I have made up however the way that I've done it um, Lord Melbourne talks about you know rooks and how how he you know rooks rebuild their nest every year and you know they renew those little civilities that make a marriage and they mate for life and the mating for life becomes a big part of that scene well Lord Melbourne really did love rooks he had a sort of he had a thing. He used to watch the rooks uh, in the trees at Brockett Hall for hours. So, in a way, I've blended fact and fiction there to make something that, even though it's come from my head, is, I think, emotionally true of the characters. Thanks for joining us, Daisy. Don't forget to check out her new book, Victoria, which is out now. Tune in to the next episode of Unknown History for more tales from the past. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, keep listening for a bonus audiobook clip from the novel Victoria by Daisy Goodwin. Kensington Palace, June the 20th, 1837. When she opened her eyes, Victoria saw a faint slither of light coming through the shutters. She could hear her mother breathing in the big bed on the other side of the room. But not for much longer. Soon, Victoria thought, she would have her own bedroom. Soon she would be able to walk down the stairs without holding Lazen's hand. Soon she would be able to do whatever she pleased. She had celebrated her 18th birthday last month, so when the moment came, she would reign alone. Dash lifted his head, and then Victoria heard her governess's quick footsteps. If Lazen was coming now, it could only mean one thing. She got out of bed and went to the door, opening it just as Lazen was putting out her hand to knock. 
Baroness looked so comical standing there with her hand outstretched that Victoria started to giggle, but checked herself as she saw the expression on her governess's face. The messenger from Windsor is downstairs. He is wearing a black armband. Lazen lowered herself into a deep curtsy. Your Majesty. She felt the smile spread across her face before she could stop herself. Reaching out her hand, Victoria pulled Lazen up to face her and was touched by the devotion she saw in the older woman's worried brown eyes. Dearest Lazen, I am so glad that you are the first person to call me that. The governess looked over towards the sleeping figure in the bed, but Victoria shook her head. I don't want to wake Mama just yet. The first thing she will do is to call Sir John, and then they will start telling me what to do. Lazen's lips twitched. But you are the Queen, Drina. She stopped, realising her blunder. I mean, Majesty, there is no one who can tell you what to do now. Victoria smiled. A door opened at the end of the corridor, and Brody, the hall boy, hurtled through it, slowing himself down to a more respectable pace when he saw the two women. As he drew near, Victoria noticed him hesitate and then commit himself to a deep bow. She felt herself wanting to smile. He was almost as small as she was, so the jester seemed droll, but she knew that it was her duty now to keep a straight face. A queen could laugh, but not at her subjects. The Archbishop is here, he announced, then hastily added, Your Majesty. Brodie's small, freckled face was suffused with relief at having addressed her correctly. Lazen looked at him sharply. And you have told no one else? The boy looked affronted. I came straight to you, Baroness, as instructed. There was a slight pause until Lazen took a coin out of her reticule and gave it to the boy who scampered away, all pretense at dignity, obliterated by his delight with his prize. You should go now, Majesty, before... Lazen glanced over Victoria's shoulder at the figure in the bed. Victoria pulled her shawl down over her nightdress, Although she would prefer to get dressed first, she knew that by the time she had arranged herself, the rest of the household would be awake, and her mother and Sir John would start to interfere. No, she would go now. She would start as she meant to go on. Victoria followed Lazen through the picture gallery, past the portrait of Queen Anne, who, as Lazen never ceased to remind her, was the last woman to sit on the English throne. Passing Anne's sulky, disappointed face, Victoria hoped that she would never look so unfortunate. She caught a glimpse of herself in the looking-glass. Her cheeks were pink, and her blue eyes were sparkling with excitement. She was not dressed like a queen, in a nightdress with her hair loose across her shoulders, but she thought that today she looked like one. When they reached the top of the great staircase, Lazen put out her hand as she always did. Victoria took a deep breath. Thank you, Lazen, but I can manage unaided. Surprise and worry flickered in succession across the other woman's face. You know that your mother told me that I must always be there in case you are falling. Victoria looked up at her. I am quite capable of walking down the stairs without mishap. Lazen wanted to protest, but seeing the look in Victoria's eyes, she subsided. Victoria started down the steps and said, looking over her shoulder, Things cannot be as they were, Lazen, now that I am queen. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.